0: Hey guys, this is Jim. Welcome to the home Politicast. I'm glad you're joining me today. We have a number of topics, as usual, to talk about. And, um... Alright, the first story I want to talk about... Is from the Detroit News, and the headline is Despite uptick, Michigan drops out of the top 15 states for the COVID 19 cases. Now, this is great news. Well, not the uptick, but that we've dropped out of the top 15. So we're making some progress here. Hopefully, we will not have to move backward as far as the stages go. It says here in the article that we have 604 new confirmed cases, but and six new deaths, but it pushed the overall totals to 8,386 confirmed cases and 6,212 deaths, according to tracking by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, it's a lot more than I uh, realized. I remember about a month ago, I probably, I was thinking that we'd only had about 800 or so cases, or 800 deaths, I think. I can't remember. I, I'm not the smartest guy. And I can't really remember what it was that I was thinking, but I was obviously off tremendously or a month in a month's time, we've gained thousands and thousands of deaths, which is very unlikely. Uh, but anyway, I think, I mean, that's great news. I, I would hope that the governor would be encouraged by this and that this new uptick is probably just because it's summer and more people are out together. I don't think it's a permanent thing. Of course, you know, I'm not a doctor, so... I have no way of knowing, but just based on this, I think that's very good news. And I I would caution her against doing something extreme and uh, or overreacting in one way or the other. You know um, I would like to see us open up, certainly, but I understand the argument against it. and so I don't think it'd be prudent for her just tomorrow. Theoretically, to open up everything and just say we're all good, uh, I think that'd be a little irresponsible. But I think we should start moving in that direction of slowly opening things in more and more areas. Uh, so anyway, I'm encouraged by that. I'm glad that we're out of the top 15. Uh, but anyway, that's in the Detroit News, if you want to look at that story. Another article here affects us here in Michigan, but it's actually part of the federal uh, National Defense Authorization Act. It's a That is an annual bill that comes before Congress and the president to sign every year. And it, uh, I guess that's what annual means, isn't it? Um, and it contains hundreds of military budgets and policy provisions um, because it's constantly changing from year to year. So uh, it, it covers, I mean, I don't, this one necessarily doesn't cover all these things, but over the years, it will cover things like pay raises for military, uh, armor, uh, all kinds of things. But another – one of the, the – dis- uh, how do I want to word this? One of the uh, downsides, I guess, or one of the bad things about having this bill come up every year and it be for our national security and protection is that many will – many members of Congress will put riders, what they call riders, R-I-D-E-R-S or writers and provisions onto the bill. They'll staple it on there because they know that it's almost certainly going to pass. The president of the United States, who's the commander in chief is not going to veto a bill that is going to help uh, our troops. Um, Even, even the presidents that you may have felt didn't care anything about the military have all approved these national defense authorization acts. So and, and, and members of Congress are not going to want to go back to their constituents and say, we didn't care about our boys out on the field and we refused to vote for these things. So the problem is that many times they'll add these riders to them, uh, especially things that are unpopular or that they know won't pass on their own, but they think if they slip it into this bill, you're not going to veto the whole bill just because there's one thing in it you don't like. So that's, That's the downside, and I'm not saying this is the case with this amendment. I'm just saying, though, that this has nothing to do, really, with the National Defense and Authorization. Uh, You know, but uh, what's her name here? I got Slot Slotkin Slotkin uh, Alyssa Slotkin. I really don't know how to pronounce her name. Um, She's from Holly, Michigan. She's a Democrat. She uh, put in an amendment that would help arm. Michigan for the PFAS battle, as you may remember, uh, we talked about that way back in uh, January and February, about how there were a number of areas here in Michigan that were contaminated and we needed federal funding. So I said all that earlier, just to explain about how these things get put in this bill. I don't want to slant this article, but making it sound like I'm saying this is just one of those ridiculous things they put in the bill. Um, you'll have to judge that for yourself. But it says here uh, on oh, this article is from the uh, Live. It's from Live, And so it says tucked into the defense authorization bill pending in Congress is a provision that toxic site activists say will arm Michigan with the regulatory firepower. Needed to force the military to clean up forever chemicals, pollution to strict levels. Let me just pause here and say, uh, I just realized how they're wording this. It's, it's about the military budget and they talk about regulatory firepower, you know, to force the military to clean. You know, I mean, it's just uh, I mean, they're using kind of this strong, uh, you know, militaristic language, You know, the firepower needed to to clean up these forever chemicals. Anyway, I continue here. The Amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, an annual bill that contains hundreds of military budget policy provisions, would require the Department of Defense to use the most stringent applicable standard when cleaning up PFAS contamination at places like Camp Grayling or the former Wurtsmith Air Force Base in Oskana. Elise Slotkin authored the provision, which did pass the House Armed Service Committee on a party line and made it to the bill passed by the full House. So if it's signed into law, Slotkin says her amendment would eliminate the need for drawn-out negotiations between states and the military over whether to abide by an unenforceable federal lifetime advisory threshold or by stricter enforceable state limits being developed to combat PFAS contamination. Um, and, you know, they have some people who are supporting it. I actually don't see anyone who's opposed to it. Uh, I would like to hear the other side is, is all I'm saying. I don't see anything in here where it's explaining what the downsides would be, because there has to be a downside. Every every bill has a downside. There's a positive and a negative for every piece of legislation that passes. Unintended consequences, all kinds of stuff. But in Michigan, passage of Slocan's amendment would force the Department of Defense to comply with both stricter groundwater cleanup levels, triggered by adoption of new high profile state level drinking water standards, as well as an obscure state rule on the books since 2014 that sets a very low limit on one particular uh, PFAS or PFAS chemical in surface waters. Uh, in Oscada, state regulators have had trouble. Getting the Air Force to comply with the low 12 parts per trillion Michigan cleanup threshold for the toxic compound at the point where groundwater vents to surface bodies like Van Eden Lake and Awe Sable River, both of which are contaminated by chemicals leaching through the old base. So, I mean, those things sound very good and and I would support that. Um, I just don't know... If what the downside would be. Um, not know. She's a former CIA analyst, a Pentagon official. Um, I did not know that. She's a member of Congress and she formerly worked with the CIA and Pentagon. Um, so, anyway, uh, I don't... Oh, Oh, I see one reason why this bill is... Brought up, it says the Pentagon has pushed back against state standards in several states. In Michigan, the Air Force has invoked its sovereign immunity from state law during disputes over compliance with the 12 PPT standard. The Air Force has resisted compliance with similar state environmental law enforcements in New Mexico, Colorado, and New York. Oh, I see. So they're claiming sovereign immunity. They're not actually part of our state, is what they're claiming. They are just a military base that's in our state, but they're not under the regular, regulation of the state. So therefore, Michigan, the state itself, cannot restrictions and put rules onto the Air Force. It has to be done on a federal level, is what the Air Force is claiming. So that's why she's passing this legislation, which I guess, if it has to do with that, maybe that is why uh, maybe I was wrong about that. that. That's why it would be in the National Defense Authorization Act. This is not just a writer. Um, it really would have something to do with the military since it wants to clean up military bases. So, But anyway, that's, uh, that's that article. Um, and those are the two main Michigan articles that I have here. Um, so here... I have two stories which kind of are connected and has to do with um, even if, um, even if schools do reopen uh, in the fall, what is even going to be taught there is a question um, that needs to, that needs to be addressed. Um, These two articles are talking a little bit about, um, about this in Chicago, in Chicago area leaders call for Illinois to abolish history classes. This is from channel five, Chicago news. Um, and this obviously as you know, I'm a big proponent of history, uh, bothers me tremendously. Okay, here's what it says here. Leaders in education, politics, and other areas gathered in suburban Evanston Sunday to ask that the Illinois State Board of Education change the history curriculum at schools statewide and temporarily halt instruction until an alternative is decided upon. At a news conference, State Representative LaShawn K. Ford said current history teachings lead to a racist society and overlook the contributions of women, and minorities. And I don't know how much more of this I can read before I get upset. Um, I'm just going to skim over some of this because most of it is just garbage. And I'm not going to waste your time or mine with it. But when it comes to teaching history, we need to end miseducation, Ford said.
1: Um, the...
0: He discussed how current history teaching practices overlook the contributions by women and members of the Black, Jewish, LGBTQ communities, and other groups. And they want an immediate change in practice. The miseducation of our children must stop. It is urgent that it comes to an end as we witness our current climate become more hostile. Miseducation has fed and continues to feed systematic racism for generations, If black history continues to be devalued and taught incorrectly, then it will call for further action. Um, Although the Evanston mayor, I have to give him some credit, his name is Steve Haggerty, said, As mayor, I am not comfortable speaking on education, curriculum, and whether history lessons should be suspended. This is not my area. Um, When he was asked about it, you know, I I mean, certainly it's not my area of expertise either but i would say i think it's wrong but he's a politician he's got to kind of play it both ways and i think that was probably the best thing to say is hey i'm not an expert on i'm a mayor i'm not a school teacher i'm not a professor i don't know i can't answer what it should be done okay here's why it it bothers me because first of all miseducation kids aren't being miseducated i'm i'll just assume that you're right this, this representative Ford is right if he says that they're – let's just assume that he's correct when he says that children aren't being taught about black history and Jewish history and women's history and all this. Okay, we'll just – we'll grant him that just for this argument here, for just for this few seconds. We'll grant him and say he's absolutely right. They're not being miseducated. Nothing that they're being taught is wrong. It's just not focusing on what they want it focused on. There's not miseducation here. We're not hearing that Kobe Bryant was the first president of the United States, and that you know America was founded in you know 1834, and that we were all Spaniards before then. And you know we're not being miseducated. It's just that education is being taught from the point of view of white people. If if their argument stands, that history is being ta- it's not being mistaught. These things actually happened. They, they actually did. There was a Boston Massacre. There was a Civil War. There was World War Two. There was, you know, you know, we had forty, forty-five presidents, or technically forty-four, but still, you know, we had presidents. I mean, these things—they're they're not wrong about any of those things. They're not—they're not getting it wrong. They're not miseducating people. They might not be educating to the fullest extent that you would like them to be. Maybe they aren't fully educated when it comes to Black history or. Native American history or Jewish history, but you know, you might say that it's lacking, that our kids are lacking in certain areas. But to say that they're being miseducated, that's just ridiculous. Secondly, uh, my point would be that I have three points there. Secondly, my point is that with the the kids, what they're what they're being taught is. From the point of view of, uh, well, like I said, of of the white settlers, I mean, they were the ones who were the founding fathers. I'm not, I I don't mean that as an insult to anybody else, but the founding fathers were white males uh, because predominantly at that time, white males were the ones who owned property, which was a big consideration when we first came to this country. The property owners, the ones who, you know, literally own the country or the ones who made the decisions. Women weren't allowed to own property. So you had white men, and of course minorities were too poor or they were in slavery or whatever. So yeah, it, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not saying it's something you're proud of. I'm not saying it's great that white men were the ones who ruled, but I'm, my point is that that was the factual history. So if you're teaching history and you want to talk about how the nation was formed, you're going to have to talk about the white men of of, of that time. You're not going to... You're not going to tell this from a slave. How is it learning the story of a slave, you know. Um, Atticus Finch was uh, a black man who was killed at the Boston Massacre. He was a slave. And uh, he was killed at the Boston Massacre. He's one of the first um, uh, 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 victims or, uh, of, the, uh, of the revolution. First casualties That's what I was looking for. Um, studying his history... Is not going to tell you how the country was founded. It's going to end when at the Boston Massacre. There are certain black people you can find, and certain women that I'm not saying didn't play an important role. Like at Valley Forge, there were women who uh, came and helped the men who were starving and without, you know, without food and clothing in the middle of winter. There were women who came out there and, and brought them soup and helped nurse them back to health and things. I mean, they played a vital role. I'm not, but they weren't the main characters. They were supporting characters. So of course you're going to tell the story from the point of white people. That that is my main point that you know up until Barack Obama all of our presidents were white men. So if you're telling the story of our nation's presidents, you're not going to tell the story of Chief Joseph or uh Sacagawea, you're talking about white men. So again, I'm not I'm not saying that that is the way it should be. I'm not saying that we should go back to only white men. I'm not saying that that was when America was great. Um, I'm just saying that that just that is history. You can't deny that. And if you're going to teach history, then you're going to talk about primarily white men until you get to a certain point in our history. And then it's going to become much more inclusive history because, you, you know, you've got the Civil War, Reconstruction, and then you get, you know, you start talking about the plight of black people and the slavery and you start talking about women's suffrage. In the nineteen or the early or the late nineteen teens, um, when women were were protesting and, and demanding the right to vote, and then you got the civil rights movement. Well, and then you start getting more into the history of of a more um, integrated history, because now you're starting to see people who have rights, who have voices, who who are making a difference in the country. So so you're going to learn more as you get older you're going to have more inclusion as you get older but if you're talking about the very beginning of this country whether whether it was right or wrong white males were the predominant people and they were the history makers primarily the third point i want to make is that's just ridiculous that history isn't teaching these things that's just a ridiculous comment because i went to grand haven public schools and it was a very and when i went there it was a very very conservative town we didn't have In the entire time I went to Grand Haven, there was only one black kid in our entire school. And he was only there for like a year. And I don't know if he dropped out or if he moved or what happened. But I remember there was, I think his name was Darren. And uh, he was the only black kid in the entire school. And there may have been some Mexicans or other things, but it was like 90% white at my school, if not more. And we're a very conservative town. If you were, I mean, it seemed like everybody was a Republican that I knew. And if you were a Democrat, you either, um, or there either were no Democrats or they were too afraid to spout their views because they knew they'd be shouted down by all the Republicans. So it was a very conservative area. And even then, I remember we went into large depths in history talking about what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust, talking about slavery, talking about, Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and you know, talking about the Underground Railroad, and when we talked, you know, we, we you know, we talked about the women's movement. They contrasted that, that in the 19 teens, we were fighting in Germany and President Wilson said we wanted to make the world safe for democracy. And they would contrast that with here at home when women are are protesting and fighting for the right to vote. Like, you know, young men are fighting and dying in foreign nations to make those countries safer democracy, and here in America, women don't even have the right to vote. I mean, you know, we, we went into this. We delved into it. We delved into the civil rights movement. We talked about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And, you know, we had vigorous debates about um, the two different roles that those two different leaders had. Martin Luther King was very much in the nonviolent protests, you know, um, and uh, marching and sit-ins and nonviolence and Looking for incremental changes, you know, being, you know, being in favor of small, little changes, and not looking for big ones. And Malcolm X was the exact opposite. Malcolm X believed that we needed change, and we needed it now. And um, and he was not. I mean, he wasn't a violent, violent man, but some of his talking was rather radical. You know, that we need. You know, we don't. One of his phrases was, "You don't ask for permission if you're a, if you're a man, if you're a free man." You don't have to ask for permission to vote. You don't have to ask for permission to do these things. And, and his argument was much more militant, not necessarily burning down buildings and, and that, but much more militant, that just kneeling and sitting down and, and protesting and just hoping that, that, you know, we'll get some crumbs from, quote unquote, the white man isn't going to do it, you know, and we need to do something now. We need to effect change now, not five years from now, not 100 years from now, not for our grandchildren. We need it today. And so it was a very different approach. And I remember in class, us discussing it, what is the better way? I mean, you know, do you, you know, is it, is it kind of like the revolution where, you know, you demand change now and you take up arms and you say, we're going to demand change or you do it like Martin Luther King, where it's just a slow process where you try to win over hearts and minds. And, you know, we discussed these things. These were not, we did not ignore these things. And this was a very conservative area. I'm sure in some areas of the country, they probably uh, spent, Weeks, if not months, just talking about uh, the condition of, of black people or Jewish. So anyway, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and this is what we're heading toward all over the country. And it just it just annoys me. This one got me a little fired up. I'm going to have to move on to the next story because that's just going to get me mad. But of course, this one is a whole better. Um, Rutgers University declares grammar is racist. The English department pledges to incorporate critical grammar into its programs. Okay, let me me quickly go through this one because our time is slipping away very quickly. The English department at the public university declared that proper English grammar is racist. Rutgers University will change its standard of English instruction in an effort to stand with or respond to the Black Lives Matter movement. In an email written by department chairwoman Rebecca Walkowitz. The graduate writing program will emphasize social justice and critical grammar. Um, oh my goodness, this is, uh, this, is just, this is just more ridiculousness. Additionally, the department said it will provide more reading to upper level writing classes on the subjects of racism, sexism, homophobia, and related forms of systematic or systemic discrimination. This is a grammar class. This is a writing class. Why are you going to have classes on racism and sexism? That has nothing to do with learning how to write or learning about grammar. Um, uh, anyway. Um, okay. This, finally, somebody, somebody is, is talking back about this. And I'm not sure who... I don't know much about this person, but I have a very difficult name for you to pronounce. It looks like it's Leonidas Johnson, a speech pathologist and libertarian activist, said the school's change makes the racist assumption that minorities cannot comprehend traditional English. Johnson called the change insulting, patronizing, and in itself extremely racist. I love this guy already. He needs to run for president. This guy is great. He continues here. And this is what he told the Washington Free Beacon. The idea that expecting a student to write in grammatically correct sentences is indicative of racial bias is asinine. It's like these people believe that being non-white is an inherent handicap or learning disability. That's racism. It has become very clear to me that those who claim to be anti-racist are often the most racist people in this country. Well, amen, Brother Johnson. In fact, I have no more I can say on it. I think he pretty much summed it up beautifully. Um, This article is in the Washington Free Free Beacon, a very good publication. Um, It's a little more center-right uh, you know, it leans a little conservative, but it's it's pretty much centered and I love it. So go go check that out and subscribe to that or uh, follow them on Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever, um, wherever you can, because they're very good. But I, I love that. All right. Um, the next topic is it doesn't affect us yet, but it affects Washington state. And it's a topic you may have heard about uh, in the news. This is from the CBS Evening News, and it says Washington officials captured the first invasive murder hornet when less than two months into mating season. Um, it, I, I loved the the byline on this. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but it caught my eye. It said that the they had, Washington had captured its first murder hornet, and the race is on to to find the nest before mating season, and um. I just I thought that that just sounds like a, a video game or um you know like you know that you have to find you know murder hornets are on the loose and you have to find the, the the nest before before they reproduce you know and your job is to go and find them and and also sounds like a movie maybe starring The Rock you know um this summer just when you thought it was safe to come out of your house you know murder wasps are are swarming and, you know, and they'll say, you know, the tagline will be, you know, you're going to ask who let the wasps out, you know, and then there'll be images of the rock jumping over things and beating up hornets and, you know, in his little crew, it'll be almost like Lord of the Rings. Like they will be on a quest to find the nest and Oh, that rhymes. They're on the quest to find the nest. so oh, it's almost like a rap song. But anyway, there's not a whole lot to say about this. It's probably, probably uh, more hype from the media than it actually is a serious problem. Um, but kind of like the bubonic plague there for a while that I actually started thinking might be serious, and then I found out that it's actually pretty common around the world um, that these things come up. But anyway, it's... It, well, it, says, it starts with this hyper hyperbolic. sense. the world's largest species of hornets invaded Washington State in December. Um, okay, they didn't. Wasn't a largest. Oh, the la- world's largest species of hornets. Uh, okay, they mean the size. I thought they meant the amount. Just like invaded Washington, like a military. But I guess they're saying the size uh, invaded Washington, but still invaded is a weird world word. But Anyway, they, they found these things, and in mid-September, the queen will mate in the uh, hornets and start reproducing new queens and workers, and so they want to find the nests before they have a chance to do this in September, and blah, 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 and I don't know if it's going to amount to anything, but it's an interesting little uh, story, and I just I still think it'd be a great movie. Of course, in my movie, the hornets would be huge, like the size of men. Uh, they probably are when they call them a giant murder hornet, it's probably just a little bit bigger than the average hornet. Probably, I, I would imagine they're not <coughs> like literally the size of humans, but, oh, here's another interesting thing. Very racist, I guess that it, it says in the headline that it has captured its first Asian giant hornet, um, Again, I, I brought this up a few weeks ago about the bubonic plague and all this and about the coronavirus and about the swine flu Why, and now these giant hornets. How come all this stuff seems to come from Asia and China? I don't understand. What are they doing over there You know, that is allowing these creatures to become larger than life and plagues to be spread around the world? I don't know. I mean, I'll probably get canceled for that. But, you know, I don't... Understand why all these things seem to come out of China. Um, so yeah, I it's all very very strange to me. Uh, the last topic is a world topic that I just think we need to be aware of because the media isn't talking about it a whole lot, and we are involved in this, and that's why I think it's important. It's not just a world issue; it's about the country of Yemen. Yemen has been Uh, I'll just give you a brief little synopsis. Yemen has been in a civil war since 2015. I mean, there's been a Yemen crisis for for quite some time, which I don't know all the details of. Uh, Let me just preface this by saying that I do know enough about foreign policy that I can have a coherent um, discussion with somebody. Uh, But I don't. I'm not an expert in foreign policy by any means, and I don't know a lot of things about why we do what we do. Um, I know lots of times what's going on around the world, but I don't know why we take positions that we do, um, in, why we take sides in certain issues, why we don't do other things, you know, uh, you know, like why we don't try to do a diplomatic uh, solution as opposed to militaristic. I don't know what, what decisions go into that. Um, I couldn't tell you why we just don't sit down and talk to a country like Iran. I I don't know. I don't know if they feel there's no need. I don't know why we've never tried to negotiate with Iran and work out our differences instead of just being opposed to them. That's what I mean. Like, I don't really know that much. I can tell you about our relationship with Iran, but I can't tell you exactly why we do what we do with Iran. Um, so that's kind of what I can tell you here. I know the Yemen crisis has been going on for many, many years. Uh, at least 10 years or more. I don't know why they've been having a crisis for 10 or more years. I do know that in 2015, under the Obama administration, they broke out into civil war and they broke into two camps. You have the government, and I can't even, I can't remember, or even if I could, I wouldn't be able to pronounce the name of their provisional government. And then you have the Houthis, I think is how you pronounce them. And I've heard that from uh Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, I've heard him refer to the Houthis, and I believe that's how you pronounce it. They are the rebel forces fighting the uh, the government. The And so this has been going on for a while. Under Obama, we took a very neutral stance, although I think privately, if I recall correctly, we were sending in drones and other things. But publicly, we were taking a more neutral stance. Under the Trump administration, we are supporting the government of Yemen, and we are opposed to the Houthis. And... From what I can understand, that from not just our government, but from other governments in the world, that it's kind of a geopolitical battle. It's not just Yemen. Like, we're looking at a much larger picture. And that Saudi Arabia is supporting the government. And that Iran is supporting the Houthis. And I don't know if they mean supporting, meaning like a football team where they just sit back and say, we hope the Houthis win. Or when they say supporting, meaning... They're providing them with guns and, and money and training. I, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know when they say Iran is supporting the Houthis, what they mean by that. Or if they're just sending out threats and saying, if, if you bomb the Houthis or if you do this, you're going to go to war with us. I, I don't know. All I know is that because of, because of the Iran situation, the United States has taken the opposing view and said, we're going to oppose the Houthis, because by opposing the Houthis, we're opposing Iran. And we don't want Iran to have any, any, uh, any leg up in the region. But here's the, the problem that I wanted to bring to your attention, is that there are innocent victims going on in Yemen. And of course, there's innocent victims at any war. And that's why war is so horrible and should only be used as a last resort. Because there are always innocent victims. And in this case, particularly, it's the children of Yemen. You know, if a person believes in a cause and wants to die for that cause, then that's that's up to them. And that's wonderful. And I mean, well, I mean, you know, it's up to them. It's their body. It's their, you know, it's their decision. But the children did not choose to be part of this civil war. And they're being starved and they are being brutalized. Uh, they're being sold. They are selling themselves into slavery just for morsels of food. I've seen pictures and it is horrific. and some of them haunt me. It, they are so bad. I wish I had never seen them of these kids who are so malnourished and they are nothing but skin and bones. They, it's frightening to look at them and it's I, I believe I'm kind of torn when it comes to issues of war. I'm not an isolationist, but I'm not really an interventionist either. Uh, but there are times, and I don't, I don't like getting involved in wars that really have nothing to do with us. Um, but there are times like if I had lived in the 1940s and knew what was going on in Germany with the Jewish Holocaust, I would have felt that the United States should have gotten involved to stop that. And that's kind of how I feel here that we need to do something, even though it's not our children, it's not affecting us. I think something needs to be done and I'm not saying we need to provide more bombs and things like that. What I'd like to see is us calling for a truce, bringing the sides together. And during that time, bringing in the UN or the Red Cross or other groups to, um, to minister to these kids, to make sure that they have nutrition, make sure that they are healthy and getting food, you know, and get, and get promises. We give promises that we're not going to use that time to bring in secret weapons or troops or, or uh, funnel money in there to to groups or to help train them, anything. That we're just there for humanitarian aid and try to work out an agreement between the two parties and figure out how both sides can can end this war. That's what I would like to see. Now, I don't know why we don't do that. There may be things that I don't know about. There may be reasons why we can't do that. There may be reasons why it's a necessity to do what we're doing. I, as a layperson, it seems like that would be the best thing to do. Now, I don't, even though I'm very critical of our government, uh, I, I believe James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, said all men in power must be distrusted. And that includes women. That's not, he's meaning people in power. Ought to be distrusted. We shouldn't just blindly follow any of them. But, in a case like this, I don't have access to all the documents and intelligence that they do. So my opinion might be completely ridiculous. If I was actually president, I might look at it and say, oh, we can't do that. Now I see why we haven't done that yet. But just as a layperson, we need to do something. And I, I, I don't know what we can do as individuals because it's a very tight enclosed country over there so they're not allowing anybody over there and I don't know if anybody would want to go over there in the middle of a war zone so I don't know what if you're like the Red Cross or a Christian organization I don't know what you can do I don't know who they allow in there I don't know who would be able to get in there or who would be willing to go even if you could get in there to provide humanitarian aid it seems like something that only our federal government could do Uh, but I don't know But anyway, it's an area that I I think we should be aware of, that there are, it's not a genocide in the way that the Jews were treated. They're not being hauled together and starved and beaten and murdered. But there is a a Holocaust going on, a genocide. It, It might not be, like I said, it might not be from the top down where they say we want to kill these kids, but the kids are dying and they're dying a horrible, sad death. And I think we should be aware of that and we should be working toward doing something to end that genocide going on in Yemen and try to find any way that we can to bring it into that war. Uh, That's all I'm going to say about that. Anyway, there was a lot of uh, topics to discuss. I am just about out of time now. So I just want to thank you again for listening. Um, And, you know, just like and subscribe and follow us and listen for Tom's program. You know, uh, he always has some really good insights and really enjoyable things to say. So anyway, I'll uh, I'll talk to you guys here next week and bye for now.